Good morning once again, church. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 15. We are continuing on in our series on the parables, uh, and uh, we are going to be uh, in one of the most famous parables, probably one of the two most famous parables, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. And so turn with me to Luke 15, and uh, we can fire up the sign language video. There we go. And uh, I'm going to read it, and then we will pray. Jesus is speaking. He says this. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who set him in, sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father told the servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of his servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, what, a, what a morning we've had already. And uh, what a parable. Um, and uh, Lord, I just pray in our time in this parable, uh, you would open our eyes to your goodness you would show us where we can find ourselves in this parable, God. 
and um, that we would, uh, we would seek uh, to enjoy life in your house above all things. We pray in the mighty, amazing name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, I have to be honest and just say right off the bat, uh, I've never really liked the title of this uh, parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, as I studied it this week, it kind of was only, uh, I, I still felt that way. I, I don't really like the title. A uh, couple reasons. Number one, who knows what prodigal means? Nobody does. Who used the word prodigal this week in your, in your daily life? If you did, you might have, but I bet you used it wrong. Because this, this parable is so famous that it, this parable has actually changed the meaning of what prodigal means. So when we think, if you hear somebody say, you know, I was a prodigal, or, you know, my, yeah, my son is a prodigal right now, what you think in your head is, well, they've wandered off. But that's not what prodigal, the word prodigal means. It just means somebody who spends a lot of money. So right off the bat, we're, the parable of the prodigal son is a little bit confusing because it, we don't even know what the word prodigal means. And then what's the second problem with calling it the parable of the prodigal son? What's the first line in the parable of the prodigal son? A man had how many sons? Two sons. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. We immediately think it's about the first son. It is about the first son, but there's another son. And I would almost argue it's more about the second son than it is about the first son. When we study the parables, this is going to be a good thing to keep in mind as we spend the next uh, five or six weeks uh, studying different parables. Parables, I should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, are, they didn't really happen. <laughs> it's, it's not a true story. Jesus made this up. <laughs> He's trying to make a point. So why is that important? It's because he didn't include any details that are unnecessary, right? If you're, uh, I have a six-year-old, when he tells me a story, he includes details that aren't necessarily going to all come together in one neat plot point at the end, right? He gives me extra details. Jesus didn't do that. He's not just saying stuff just to say it. There's a reason why this parable doesn't end with the lost son coming home. It's because that's not the whole story, and so what we need to do, we have a kind of our work cut out for us this morning because we almost need to back up and look at this very familiar story with new eyes to see what this parable of two sons is trying to show us. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to kind of walk through it verse by verse like we usually do. And then at the end, I'm going to suggest that there are at least four places that you could find yourself in this story. And so we're going to walk through the story, and then we're going to talk about where are those four places that you could find yourself in this story. Does that sound okay? It doesn't, I guess, apparently. But we're going to do it anyway. I don't even know why I asked. All right, I'm uh, not even close to on my notes here, so let's get back to the notes. And uh, Okay, here we go. So we have a story of two sons. That's the introduction. A man had two sons. It's a short introduction. Then we talk about, right, the introduction, then the rising action, and the climax, and the falling action. Introduction, there's a man who had two sons. Now the, the problem is introduced to the story right away. What's the problem? One of the sons is a moron. <laughs> no two ways about it. Uh, and it's the younger brother. It's always the younger brother. Ben Hammerkaus, you can relate to this. It's always the younger brother, isn't it? Yeah. I'm older brother. I feel that, right? The younger son tells his father, 
that even though his, he's still living to his father, that he's ready for his share of the inheritance right now. And it is almost impossible to overstate how offensive this was when he asked his dad for the share of the inheritance. Dad, I wish you were dead. That's how you'd be the most helpful to me. But since you're not dead, the second way well, you can be second most helpful to me is just give me all the stuff that I'll get when you're dead now because I don't want to wait. That's what he asked him. And if you are the father in this situation, say you're a man with two sons and you have a big, great estate and one of your sons says that, uh, what do you do? Slap him in the face? Doesn't even matter how old he is probably. You give, and you say, son, go to your room um, and uh, we're going to talk about this later, right? Uh, don't you dare ever take that tone of voice with me again, young man. Is that what the father does in this situation? No. What does he do? He gives it to him. This is unfathomable. And to be honest, unwise, right? Imagine if this is your best friend is the father in this situation, and he's telling you about what his son told him. And uh, what would you counsel him to do? Oh, yeah, sure. Sell your stuff or, you know, give him, give him half your land and half your stuff. That's a great idea. This guy who is uh, clearly going to make really great choices with, with it. Yeah, just give it to him. No, you'd be like, dude, <laughs> uh, don't do that, right? You're making a terrible mistake. You're about to lose half of your things. It's just going to be flushed, gone, right? Because that's what's going to happen. And, uh, and uh, but the father does it. He gives it to him. And so what does the, the moron son do? <laughs> exactly what you'd expect. He sells all the land and property he's been given and takes the money and runs. And what we need to think about is what that felt like for the people who were still on the farm. Can you imagine that? Farmers? <laughs> Farmer, you got two sons. Your son demands his inheritance, so you give him half of your land. And... Uh, he sells it and takes the money and runs. Now, every single time you see somebody working that land, that's not you, that is your land. It's just a reminder, right? It's just, it's just a punch in the gut of what your stupid son has done. And um, we need to feel how offensive this is and how just truly unconscionable this is. Like, this is just, this is a terrible situation. So what happens? The younger brother, now he's, he's got some, some dough, right? He's rolling in it. So what does he do? He moves away, and he decides, you know what? I really need to shape up. I'm going to make some wise investments that will give me a good return, and then I'm going to go back to the father. No. What's he do? He blows it, right? It says, uh, depending on your translation, uh, he squandered it in reckless living, foolish living, or wild living, right? So if this was a parable set in the States, what would it say? It would say the, the son sold the stuff, took the money, went to Vegas, right? That's, that's what is happening here, right? There's women involved, I'm sure, and alcohol and gambling and just really bad investments. And he probably bought a Lamborghini chariot and wrecked it, right, like the first day. And he's just, just being a moron. That's what I'm saying. Just squanders it all. Just pouring his father's hard work right down the toilet, day by day, bringing nothing but shame on the family. He's just a complete and utter disaster loser, this guy is, right? And then speaking of disaster, what happens next? Disaster, 
strikes. This is actually something that we don't really always notice in the story. When we think, if you're retelling the parable of the prodigal son, you might skip over this detail. But there's a famine that comes. And uh, all of a sudden, this brother who's been rolling in the dough is now uh, rolling with the pigs. And, uh, and this is also a problem. Now, shout out to the hog farmers in the congregation. I know we've got a couple. Uh, so don't take this the wrong way. But if you're a Jewish person, uh, working with pigs is not a job that uh, was necessarily uh, desired. We'll, we'll put it that way. Uh, Jewish people and pigs don't go together. Uh, there's a famous story in uh, my wife's family. Uh, we, we like to quote different things all the time. And one of the things we quote, uh, Emily's mom, their, their family was in, uh, I think it's Shapiro's Deli down in Indy. Is that what it's called? And uh, she went up uh, and uh, she ordered a ham sandwich. And the guy behind the counter just looks at her and says, no ham here, ma'am. And uh, so we quote, no ham here, ma'am, all the time. But anyways, all that to say, this is, a bit, this is not good that he's, uh, he's working for a Gentile and working with pigs, of all things, the most unclean of all animals for the Jewish people. And not only is he working for a Gentile feeding pigs, he's so desperate, right, that he famously wants to eat the pig's food too, and he's so just down on his luck. I mean, think about the kind of guy this, this is. If you wouldn't even let him eat your pig's food, right, that's the kind of guy that we're talking about. And uh, it's not going good for him. And so verse 17 tells us that the story starts to turn. It says, he came to his senses. Okay, finally, all right, blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. He comes to his senses like he's, he's sitting there with the pigs and he just, this thought dawns on him, right? Things couldn't possibly be any worse for me here. So he thinks to himself, like, I know I brought a lot of shame on my family. I know I've lost, like, I know I've lost my right to be a son in my father's house. Like, that's just out of the question. Like, I know I'm not going to go back and expect my dad to treat me like a son. The thought doesn't even cross his mind. But he says, maybe, just maybe, if I go back, he will hire me on as one of his hired workers. Like, my inheritance is gone, but maybe I can get a job there. As I was uh, studying this week, I came across something by uh, Tim Keller's pastor. He unfortunately passed away, actually, from cancer this week. Just an amazing pastor, a uh, huge influence in my life. But he, uh, he wrote a book on this parable called Prodigal God, which if we know the word, meaning of the word prodigal, which is somebody who spends a lot, right? That's a kind of a cool twist on the parable of the prodigal son, uh, God who gives just abundantly. Uh, but he talks about how the younger son probably, he didn't, ask, he says, it's interesting, he didn't just say, I can be a servant. He says, I can be a hired worker. And he says, probably what's going on there is there's like this apprenticeship program that he could have gone through to then start to earn some money for uh, the father to actually start to pay back some of this money that he had spent. So like going back, realizing I, I need to pay him back for some of this money that I've wasted. And uh, that's the plan. And um, that plan makes sense to me, right? Does that make sense to you? Uh, he's thinking, maybe I can go back and somehow I can get in with my father's uh, workers so I can make him some more money and so that I can start to pay him back for what I've done. That 
feels good to me, right? That feels, uh, for all parties, that feels good, you know, for him. He needs to pay this back, obviously, and maybe the father will have just enough grace to say, okay, I'll give you the opportunity to pay me back. Like, this, this makes sense uh, to me. This is a reasonable plan that the son has. And so what does the son do? Because he's nervous, right? I mean, imagine going back with nothing to show. He had a lot, right? And now he's got nothing to show for it. And imagine going back and having nothing to show for it and having to ask for something else from your dad after what you have just done. And so what does he do? This is what we need to catch. I love this part of the parable. He's, he rehearses a speech that he's going to say to his father. He's, he's like practicing it. You can imagine him just saying it word for word over and over, getting it just right and, and just nailing it down as he's walking back. He's practicing the speech. Look at the speech that he's going to say in verse 18. It's a good speech. He says, I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So that's the plan. And uh, the question is, do things go according to the plan? Nope. Nope. Wasn't a trick question. No, they don't. Um, Who messes up the plan? Uh, The father actually messes up the plan. Look at what happens. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. Imagine, the son has got a long journey back. He's from a faraway land. And uh, I'm sure he's running through every possible scenario in his head of how this could go, from like his older brother literally killing him on sight to maybe they'll let me be a hired worker, as best case scenario. He ran through every possible scenario in his head, but I guarantee he didn't run through this one. The father runs out to him, throws his arm around him, and kisses him. Tim Keller says, again, in that book, that he's, the father's kind of, he's not playing a father role. This is not how ancient Near Eastern fathers acted. They certainly didn't run. Like, that just never happened for, for any reason. And then to throw your arms around him and kiss him, he's, he's playing the mother role in this story, to be honest. This is undignified from the father. He runs out and meets him. And this, this is what's so great. So it's like the plan is off the rails at this point. The son's like, I don't know what's going on. But he says, I guess I just better continue with my speech, right? So what does he say in verse 21? He's getting hugged and kissed by the, his father, probably taken off guard. But he still tries to get his speech out. Look at it. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Do those words sound familiar? That's exactly what he was practicing that he was going to say. And now he's starting to say the speech that he was going to say to the father. And and what's the father's response? He doesn't even have a response. He's not even listening to to what he's saying. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure, son. Hey, servants, go get my best robe. Like, these clothes are all tattered. Like, we got to get him cleaned up. We go get my best ring, and let's go get the best animal and kill it, and let's have a party because my son is home. And church, this makes no sense. And that's how we're supposed to hear this parable. It makes no sense. The father is doing what no father would ever 
do here. And you know what? It makes the older son furious. Furious. He is upset. He cannot believe what the father has done. Now, we've got to talk about this older son here for just a minute. Um, I want you to actually look back at uh, the beginning of chapter 15, uh, verses 1 and 2. We're going to see some parallels here. The Pharisees are mad at Jesus about something. What are they mad at? Look at verses 1 to 2. Uh, at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them? Are you kidding me? What are they mad about? Jesus is feasting with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is... um, partying with the people who have done everything wrong and people who, in their eyes, have done everything right are complaining about that. Does that sound anything like this parable? The father is being extravagant toward the son who's done everything wrong and the son who, in his eyes, has done everything right is furious. Jesus is speaking this parable to the Pharisees to try to teach them something about the kingdom. The Pharisees are so upset. The older son is so upset. He gets a party with a fattened calf. <laughs> like that animal that's like, that is, you only kill the fattened calf for the most special occasion. That's like a once in a lifetime feast. And he gets it. He already wasted everything else. He gets that now too. He should be thrown off the property, not have a party thrown for him. So what does he do when he finds out? He throws a tantrum and he won't even go inside. He refuses to go inside. So what does the father do? He kind of undignifies himself again. That, is, that brings shame. If you're throwing this big feast with the fattened calf and everyone's invited and your oldest of your two sons refuses to come in, I mean, that brings shame upon the family just there. And so the father goes outside and he pleads with the older son to come inside. And look at what verse 29 says. Look, I've been slaving. That's what the older son says. I've been slaving many years for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. What in the world, he says. I've been here the whole time. You never threw a party for me. What gives? You cook up the filet mignon when he comes home. I don't even get a pizza party. He's upset. And he sounds like a spoiled brat here. He he can't even refer to him as my brother, right? Did you notice that? This son of yours, he said, came home. Doesn't even call him my brother anymore. He sounds spoiled, and yet the point is, this is exactly how you would feel and act in this situation. Exactly. That's you right there. And uh, the point is not that the 
older son is being unreasonable. The point is that the father is being unreasonable. They've lost half their stuff. The older brother has stayed home during all of this. He's done what he's supposed to do. He's weathered the storm. All the while, his younger brother's off having a better time than he was partying in Vegas. And then he finally starts to feel the consequences of his actions. And when he comes home, rather than his dad teaching him a lesson, he instead throws him a party. Listen to the father's response to the older son. Son, he said to him, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. He didn't get that. Everything I have is yours already. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And church, that's the end of the parable. Isn't that interesting? What do you want to know? What happens next? What's the brother do? Does he... Storm off? Does he leave the family? Does he come back in? Does he ever welcome in his brother? What happens next? That's the question, and that's the point. What's ha what happens next? What's his response going to be? Pharisees, you, you're grumbling because I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus says. But you got to understand what it means when a sinner repents and comes home. we got to celebrate. So what are you going to do about it? That's what Jesus says. And that's the story. And so, yes, this is a story about God's grace and acceptance of sinners. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But even more than that, the story is a question of what are you going to do about the fact that God's love is way more radical and even borderline offensive, when you think about it, than you could have ever imagined. Where are you going to be when God throws his party for tax collectors and sinners? I was uh, able to, like I said, spend some time with uh, Aaron and Liz in the hospital on Friday, and we were just, we were, our, our conversation turned to theology, and Aaron said something that was so profound. We, I didn't even tell him I was preaching on Father's uh, uh, Prodigal Son yet. He said, he was talking about the, the offensiveness of the gospel, which is something that we've all heard, the gospel is offensive. And, and he said, I used to think the gospel was offensive primarily because it told people how to live when they didn't want to live that way. And so it was offensive to uh, non-believers. He said, the longer I follow Jesus, the more I realize the gospel is offensive because God's love shouldn't be that great. His mercy shouldn't be that fast. It doesn't make any sense. And he said, it's so hard to apply it to my own heart. And it makes it hard when I see it applied to other people's hearts. And I said, buddy, you'll never guess what I'm preaching on on Sunday. That's it, man. God's love, from a certain perspective, is offensive. And yet, what the story is trying to show us is that it's not offensive because if you're in Christ, the fullness has been applied to you. What happened to the younger son has happened to you, whether you think you're the younger son or whether you think you're the older son. You see what I'm saying? And so there's four places we could find ourselves in this story. I'm going to talk about each one. The first place that I think we could, you could just maybe this morning where you're at is uh, maybe you're just at the very beginning where the sun is uh, spending your inheritance still, right? Just blowing it all. The, the sun was having a wonderful time at first, 
but he didn't realize that disaster was about to strike. And there was going to be a famine, and he was going to lose everything. And uh, this is the scariest of the four places to be, I think. If, if this morning, if you're, if you're here, and by God's grace, you're hearing this. He wants you to hear this. If you're hearing this, and you are just completely living life for yourself, just selfish, with zero care and zero consequences, glad to be out of the gaze of the Father. Finally, my Father can't see what I'm doing. I'm going to go do what I want and live it up. Oh, man. That's not going to end well for you. <laughs> Maybe the famine hasn't hit yet, but it's going to come. And so if that's you, let me just say as lovingly as possible, before the famine comes, <laughs> go home <laughs> and find the loving arms of the Father. If that's you, oh, man, hear, hear these words from the Lord today. Go home to the Father. There's a second place you might be. Uh, which is uh, maybe you're stuck in the pig pen right now. Maybe that disaster already struck. Maybe you are embarrassed about the mess that you've made of your life, but you're too prideful to come to your senses, right? That would, that's what happened at first with the younger son. Disaster struck, but he thought, maybe I can just get by eating pig's food. When he couldn't even get that, that's when he said, maybe it's better for me to go home. Oh, Beloved, God wants so much more for your life than, uh, than pridefully stuck in the pig pen saying, I'm going to make this work. Uh, you're not. And he wants you home. Oh, man. Even the younger son who was a moron eventually came to his senses. And you're not a moron. Even he eventually realized life couldn't be any possibly worse for him, couldn't possibly be any worse for him in his father's house. So don't be so prideful not to do the same thing that the younger brother did, which is realize that there's just no life in the pigsty. And come to your senses and, and start heading home, and you're going to be blown away by how quickly the Father comes running out to you. Amen? Here's the third place you might find yourself. Um, rehearsing your speech to God. And this is so common, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is all of us at some point or another. When the younger son decides to go home, what's he do? He says, I got to just, I got to come up with this speech and come up with a plan for my life that's going to show my father why it's worth it for him to bring me back into his home. You see what I'm saying? God, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, God. We think of God's love like God's love's here. And then like here's the holiest person I know, right? And down the line. And I know God's not going to let me here, but maybe he'll just let me here. If I can convince him that it's worth it just to kind of let me in. God, just give me a chance. I promise I'll pay you back. I promise I'll make it up to you. I promise I'll make you think it was worthwhile to save me, God. Just give me a chance to do that. Can anyone relate to that lie from the enemy this morning? That's a lie. The younger son 
didn't understand the extravagance of the love of his father, that he was going to come running to him. He had a wrong picture of his father in his head. And we do the same when we rehearse in our minds how we need to convince God somehow that I'm going to do better this time, God, so just please, I promise I'll make it worth it to you. We approach the throne of God trembling, as we should, because we've taken what God gave us and we devoured his property with prostitutes and we have nothing to show for it but our filthy clothes. And Jesus comes running out and says, take my robe. Let me make you worthy of my house. And we somehow think we're going to contribute something to that. Like it's not just Jesus clothing us. What are you going to do with your rags? Come on. Nothing. Oh, man. The enemy wants you stuck in that place on the path home, rehearsing to God why you're going to make it worth his while to bring you back. And God says, I'll have none of that, my child. You're Just come home. I just want you home with me. Take my clothes. I'm going to make you worthy to come in the house. You're not doing it. I'm doing it. Amen. Oh, brother, sister, if you find yourself in this constant place of feeling like you need to rehearse your speech to God, be free of that this morning. Feel his embrace. Let him put his robe of righteousness on you. Quit trying to pay him back for the cross and start enjoying the party of living in God's house. Now, it shouldn't need to be said. It doesn't mean you just go out and squander more of his stuff all the time. That's not what we're saying. But man, you're not going to make it worth his while. He just wants you home because you're his son, you're his daughter, and he's going to clothe you and bring you in, and he's going to have a party. There's a fourth place you might find yourself in this story. And unfortunately, it's another one where I think uh, many of us find ourselves, and that's what we were talking about before, uh, standing outside the party uh, with the older brother. And there's, there's one more thing, hang with me, there's one more thing I want to draw your attention to that the older brother said, I wonder if you noticed it, verse 29, this is in the CSB translation that this really comes, the force of this comes out. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you. Okay, so that's how you feel about being in my house, son. Been slaving? Let me ask you something. Does that sound like someone who wants to be in the father's house? No. So what do we have at, from, at the very beginning of the story? Now we learn, we got to bring that back to the beginning. Now we learn there's not one but two sons who wish their father was dead. One of them just says, I'm not going to wait till he's dead and live in this house and follow all these stupid rules. I'm just going to go. The other son says, I'm going to wait in this house and follow all these stupid rules and slave away because then I'll get my reward. And boy, am I going to deserve it. He wants his father to be dead too. Neither one wanted to live in the father's house anymore. You see, as we have 
Big theological words for this. One's called legalism. One's called licentiousness. Legalism is just I'm going to follow all the rules and just be a good person until I get what I want, my reward. And licentiousness is, well, I'm not going to follow all the rules. But what do they have in common? They both hate being in the Father's house. The older brother decides he's going to wait it out, but it's no better. This is what we're supposed to see. It is no better to live like that, angry in the father's house and slaving away than it is to just be off, you know, just doing whatever. And my fear is this is just such a common way of relating to God. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give my 10% going to avoid all the big sins, going to do what's expected of me, and eventually I'm going to get my reward, and all those other people who aren't suffering through all this bad behavior like I am, eventually they're going to get what's coming to them, and they're going to see, they're going to be jealous because my reward's going to be so much bigger than theirs because that's what I deserve. Oh, man. And so you can see why the older son is upset. Because if that's your posture to God, that being in the Father's house is terrible, but you just have to wait it out so you can get your reward. And if you don't wait it out, you don't get a reward like me. If that's your posture towards God, there's nothing more offensive than seeing God lavish grace on someone who absolutely in no way deserves it. If that's your posture towards God, call back to last week, there's nothing more offensive than someone showing up at the job site at 4.55, working for five minutes, and getting the same wages that you got when you were there all day at 8 a.m. If that's your posture towards God, there's nothing more offensive than when you see him forgiving sinners and gasp eating with them. If that's your posture towards God, you're going to be jealous when you see other people getting the things that you want. And if that's your posture towards God, if you think a relationship with him is nothing more than a slavery to endure until you get your reward and finally get free of that, then I would ask why you're still in his house to begin with because it's no better than what the younger son was doing. If you hate everything your dad wants you to do as a part of living in his house, then really you just hate your dad. (laughs) And if that's you, guess what? Here's the story's going to flip. And you've been the younger son all along. And you need to turn and run home. And guess what? He's going to meet you there. (laughs) He's going to lavish you with his love and grace and you are going to be blown away because then you're going to start to realize oh God how much have I sinned against you not by just going and living how I want but by harboring this bitterness toward living in your house oh God forgive me and he's going to say come here son let me give you the robe let me give you the ring I'm going to slaughter the calf for you, and we have to celebrate. Oh, man. What a father we have. What a father we have. Let's pray. Oh, God. We are so undeserving your grace, of your mercy. We're not even worthy 
to try to work to pay you back for all of the debt that we've racked up against you. And you, you don't want us to even try. God, I pray if there are any, um, any people hearing this right now who have been spending their inheritance like crazy right now with no consequences and not looking back, God, draw them to you before uh, that famine comes, God. But if not, then bring the famine so they can see the destructive consequences of what they're doing. Lord, if there are any in here who are just like in the, just the mess of life right now realizing, ah, oh, I've done, made a terrible mistake. God, I pray that they would turn and go to you and that they would recognize your waiting arms. Lord, for those of us who are struggling with rehearsing our speech about why we think we can make it worthwhile that you saved us, Lord, just rid us of the, that foolishness. And may we just relish in and embrace the goodness and sweetness of the gospel. And Lord, for those of us who are struggling being Pharisees, you think I put in my time, they need to too. God, may we just see. Ah, and we're missing the point entirely. And that you celebrate when a lost son, a lost daughter comes home. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.